Do what you need to do, brother. We can dismiss the children now. Up to oh, that's right. That's right. Better right. let them go. And we'll bring you back for the, for the, for the, for the song. Go, 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 go. Cool. Love technology. Yeah. Well, it is an honor to be here. Uh, I grew up in Lafayette, Louisiana, so the, the humidity is making me feel like I'm back at home. Uh, my wife and I have been in New York City since 2002. We went there to actually plant a church after 9-11. And we stayed there until 07. Took a 10-month sabbatical in um, Houston. I had been in ministry for 20 years in 07. And uh, we went back so my wife could finish school. She actually finished a degree at Columbia University in African Studies and Human Rights. So I like to tell people I married her because she was hot. Then I found out she was smart. Now I'm in trouble. Um, and so she went back and finished that. And I was trying to figure out what, what was I going to do next. Um, because I loved speaking in schools and going around the world. But I was tired of going and speaking for another thousand kids in another gym or auditorium somewhere in the world and getting another standing ovation. So a friend of mine called me and he said, Kevin, come lead worship at this thing called Urban Youth Ministries. I'm going to start my clock now. I got a minute for free. Um, um, he said, come and lead worship at Urban Youth Ministries. So I'm in Colorado and I'm leading worship at this thing called Urban Youth Ministries and there's all these white vans outside. So I say to my friend Mike, I said, Mike, why are the white vans outside? He said, they belong to Colorado Uplift. I said, I'm confused. This is Urban Youth Ministries. Why do you have Colorado Uplift vans outside? He said, because all the adults you see here working with the kids in small groups, they work in the public schools five days a week and they teach a character class. It counts as an elective during the school day. And then they do after school stuff with these kids. They take these kids snowboarding in Vail. And so you got the poorest of the poor snowboarding in Vail, right? And they're teaching them adventure stuff, taking them on hikes. And then we make sure that they graduate from high school and go to college. And actually 93% of our kids graduate from high school, right? In a school system that graduates about 55% in inner city Denver, but we're graduating 93% and then 86% of them going to go to college. Now at that point I invited myself back to their fall retreat. I said, I'm coming back to see this thing. And when I saw it, I really felt like it was what God was calling me to do next. And uh, we started in New York City about four years ago and we're graduating kids at 93%. New York City is about 60, 65. And uh, it's, it's amazing. But I didn't know what I was saying yes to when I said I'd run an organization, like, you know, found a nonprofit build a board of directors, deal with the emotional and the relationships and the personalities of a board of directors. So I've been in a, I haven't been in a learning curve, I've been like in a learning ladder, just right up against the wall there. And I've been learning a lot. But it's been, it's been awesome. And that's kind of the culmination of what you saw me doing back in 1986 when we met. And Brian, you know, Brian is just the most amazing dude. I was, I was sitting, we were, we were sitting at breakfast, and when I'm around Brian, because he knows the word so well, I, I don't like to talk. I, I actually talk more than I'm talking around you, but I just love to hear the word come out of him. And so I don't know if you all recognize that and if you realize the gift that you have, but this dude is pretty phenomenal, and I've loved him for a long time, and, and he's all right. So when he asked me to come and do this, I said, sure, and then I spoke four times the other day, and I'm still hurting because I no longer do that. I'm in schools with kids and in board meetings, in boardrooms. And so I, hopefully I won't have to sit down here in a minute. And then we're going to do it again today and then tomorrow. And then I get to leave. Amen. <laughs> the other side of my, the other side of the other calling I felt like God had given me 
not long after I met you in 86 was I, I realized when I became a Christian why God had gifted me the way he gifted me. Uh, is that right if I walk around? Is that right? I'm, I'm kind of, yeah, I got to move a little bit. And, and so I realized that the songs that I grew up singing, because I grew up in a Methodist church doing songs and singing for people, but we never really understood worship. And so through Fellowship of Christian Athletes, Campus Crusade for Christ, some other organizations I was involved with, I realized, I said, oh, this is why God made me this way. was not to perform for people, but to teach them how to worship. And so part of what I've done is, over the years, is I've recorded, I don't know, five, six records and sung on another five or six for other people. And, but I've had an opportunity in the last few years to go into churches and help them assess where they are in worship, help them discover where they want to go in worship, and try to give them a plan to get there. And so I kind of fell into this thing of being a church music worship consultant, right? And uh, I've learned a lot, even, even though I thought I knew a lot, I thought I had this gifting and this calling, God's taught me a lot through it. And so I want to share some of that with you today. When I was talking with Brian about that, he said, well, it's amazing because we're right in this series on biblioanthro, that, what is, what's up in there? And he said, you know, you've talked about bibliology, in anthropology and soteriology. I mean, you've got to be smart to be in this church, all these ologies. And last week was doxology, which is how I worship. You preach that, right? And he said, well, why don't you talk about how do we worship? Because that's what we're doing here, is worshiping musically. But I like to say it like this. All of life can be an act of worship. And I'm going to get to that in a second. But if you look at this passage of Scripture in Ephesians um, 5, and you ask, why do we worship... Well, we worship as in a response to being filled with the Holy Spirit. He says this, he says, Don't get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And here's the next thing. Speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. So you will notice that singing is happening two different ways. It's horizontal. He says, speak to one another. So in a minute, we're going to sing this song. Our God is greater our God is stronger. You know this song? Yeah? So when I'm singing, our God is greater, I'm not singing that to him. He knows he's greater. Alright? I'm saying, our God is, it's our God is stronger. But then I say, God, you are higher than any other. Now I'm telling him that he's higher than any other. Right? So we make music in our hearts to the Lord, and we also sing to one another in Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Anybody ever had this experience? You come to church, you're not feeling that good. But after the music's done, you go, I think I feel a little better. Anybody ever had that? Yes, it happens to all of us. Well, that's because you're encouraging one another and you're singing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And actually, the Holy Spirit inside of a person who's encouraged actually almost wakes up the Spirit inside of you and goes, come on, let's remember. We were headed for death and now we're in life. We were in the kingdom of darkness and now we're in the kingdom of light. And there's something about when... That's why I like, we're, we're sitting at breakfast. I was having my second breakfast today, like the hobbits. <laughs> and we're having second breakfast with, with Brian just, just down the road. And I'm just, I'm just listening to the word pouring out of this guy. And I'm just getting encouraged. Because that's what we're supposed to do as believers. We can do it sitting over second breakfast, or we can do it in song. Next slide. Oh, so. I, I'm a teacher, so I love etymology. I love words. I love the meaning, the origin, the history of words. And I loved when you look at the word praise and appraisal, worthy and worship, you see that they have similar roots. So 
when we praise God, we are giving Him... Whoa, is this water? Thank you. Phenomenal athlete you. Should have seen her playing basketball yesterday. Feel sorry for those girls. Anyway. Um, I was like, I'll take you on my team any day. Go and get them. So, um, praise and appraisal have the same root word. When I praise God, I'm actually telling him, I'm giving him an appraisal of his value. Girls, if a guy comes up to you and says, I love you so much, baby, I want to give you this, and I want you to spend the rest of my life, go get that thing appraised. Find out what he just gave you. <laughs> Make sure he didn't get that thing out of a Cracker Jack box. All right? That's an appraisal, right? If you want to sell your house, you call in a person, and they look at your house, and they tell you the value. They go, well, you got some problems in the foundations. You need to fix this or that. That's an appraisal. So when we praise him, we're telling him and telling others what he's worth. Same with worthy and worship. When I worship him, I'm describing to him what he's worth to me. Now that can happen musically, but it can also happen in other areas of life. Brian, you're just preaching my sermon all day. Liturgy. I grew up in a Methodist church, I told you that earlier, and we had a liturgy. Our liturgy was interesting. Nothing like yours. Our liturgy, I'm not going anywhere, just stay where you are. You can stay, stay facing the front. So our liturgy started in our church, Trinity CME. And we would come in through the doors, and they'd be playing a song. And we would be like this. We're singing something. We wouldn't sing. They're just playing a song. And we're all walking in like this. Good thing we're mostly black people, because you've got to have rhythm. <laughs> all right? And we did this. It took us eight minutes to start service. But that happened every single Sunday. I'm going, this is not effective time management. <laughs> So we walked up, and then after that, we, uh, we had a responsive reading. There were these responsive readings in the back of our hymnal. Then we would sit down, and then uh, someone would stand up for a, like a welcoming prayer, and then we'd sit down. Then we'd stand up and sing, praise God from whom all bless. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Then we'd sit down, and then after we sit down, the, pra- the pastor would get up for the pastoral prayer that could last forever. And after the pastoral prayer, then we'd have a, you know, a song, then we'd take up the offer. That was our liturgy. That was how we did church. And what can happen is if you don't understand biblically why you're doing something, you do it just out of habit, or you do it out of liturgy. You do it because this is what we do at our church. So is singing, and we're talking today about musical worship, is singing something that you do just because it's what you do at church? Anybody seen the movie, Chariots of Fire? about Eric Little. He was running in the 1924 Olympics. His family had a missionary work in China. He's training for the Olympics and his sister gets upset with him because he's spending all this time getting ready to run. And I remember this one scene. They're walking in the beautiful UK countryside and it's almost like he snaps. He says, Jenny, God made me for a purpose for China. But God also made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Remember that scene? He was saying, look, I'm going to go do the mission work, but while I'm beating people on the track, that's worship too. I can actually worship while running track. I remember one of the kids I discipled back in the 90s, he was doing, a, he was doing some graduate work at UCLA, getting his MBA. And he called me, it was John Pinkson. You remember him, Brian? Brian, I ever introduced you to John Pinkson? John Pinkson's out in... UCLA getting his MBA and he calls me one day and he says and this is a kid that I mean I saw him come to Christ I taught him the Bible we traveled he said man I'm out here studying and I feel the presence of God while I'm studying 
I went, you just went past me in Christianity. I have never felt God's presence studying. But he, was, he got it that no matter what we do, we can be worshiping. And that's what, that's what 1 Corinthians 10.31 teaches us. The Apostle Paul says, I was like, go to the next one, but that's my job, isn't it? The Apostle Paul says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now, Paul, are you going to give us any time? So whether you eat or drink, okay, that leaves me a lot of time in the day. Or whatever you do. Oh, now you got me. Whether you're eating or drinking, or by the way, whatever you're doing in life, whatever you're doing, do it all for the glory of God. Whatever you do can be an act of worship. So tomorrow morning, when I'm speaking to the athletes, in the morning or the afternoon? Okay? So in the morning, when I'm speaking to the athletes at, what school? That's what I'm going to be dribbling and juggling basketballs. That's what it's going to look like to them. But I'm going to be doing it out of a heart of worship. I'm going to be doing it to the glory of God. Because anything you do can be an act of worship. When I'm talking with the superintendent and we're talking about the possibility, the potential of bringing Elevate here, I do that because I go into the schools in the Bronx. When I walk in that neighborhood, it's the roughest neighborhood in New York City to grow up in, has been voted. And I realize I'm putting my life on the line. And I just hired Jasmine, a young lady from our church, and she and her husband are on board too. And we walk in there and we're putting our lives on the line. Because every year we've been in, in existence, one kid involved in our program has been killed. We know that it's an act of worship. We're doing it to the glory of God. And whatever you do can be to the glory of God. An accountant goes to work so that he teaches God's people or the people who have hired him to, to steward the resources that God has given them. A doctor goes to work to be God's hand of healing in the earth. Right? I believe it was Sir Francis Bacon. He said an archaeologist can go to, to earth to, to work and read the record of who God is in the rocks. He said, God has given us two records of who He is. One is His Word. The other one is the rocks. The rocks cry out to the glory of God. So whatever you do can be an act of worship. And I believe you talked about that before here. But we're going to talk about specifically today about musical worship. And there's a teaching that I've, that I've done over the years. And, and it has these different components of the power of understanding power of sound, atmosphere, unity, and expectation. I'm not going to do all those today. We're going to try two of those because it would take a long time. I, I, love, I love speaking at church because I get 45 minutes. When I preach at Hillsong, I get 35. See? I like Texas. Everything's bigger and better in Texas. You get more time to preach in Texas. So we're going to talk about two of these. <laughs> and we're going to start with the power of understanding. And I love this concept. And again, see, I'm telling you, you're preaching my sermon while we're eating. Lack of understanding does not negate truth. It's very important to understand. Just because you don't understand something doesn't mean it's not true. It just means you don't understand it. Right? I mean, you guys work at Dow and NASA. And I don't even know if that's the right way to say it. NASA, NASA. You, you, you fly things, right? You build things that fly. You do a lot of stuff that us normal people have no idea about. You calculate stuff that if we looked at it, we'd go, what language is that? And just because I don't understand it doesn't mean it's not true. It just means I don't understand it. And if it's valuable to me, and if I have the capacity to learn it, then I'm going to do something about it, and I'm going to make efforts to go and learn that and apply it to my life. It's not, so that's why you're not going to see me at NASA, right? But 
you will see me sitting in front of my, my television with my remote, clicking. 728, that's ESPN in New York. 729, that's ESPN2. 465, that's the tennis channel. My wife is talking to me. I'm acting like I'm listening, but I'm not. I'm really looking there. Now, look, I don't understand technologically what's happening, but all I know is that when I point that remote at the television, it works. It's true. All of the principles of science and, and I don't know, physics or whatever, that, all of that is true even though I don't understand it. And I get the benefits of it even if I don't understand it. You guys know I'm setting you up, don't you? I can tell you. You're looking at me like, like what do we don't understand? <laughs> all right? So if you look at Psalm 28.2, Brian and I were talking about this earlier, about lifting hands. Lifting hands is part of biblical worship. I know some people are not wired to naturally be responsive. It's just the way you were born. You were born more introverted. Like some people, probably like myself and Brian, we were born more extroverted. Well, that's okay. However you were born, the beautiful thing about it is you get to be born again in Christ. You know, I was born with a propensity to be an alcoholic because my grandfather was. So what I could say is, well, you know, it's in my family. I... I'll just go ahead and be an alcoholic. Or I could have gotten born again, which happened in 86. And that curse didn't hit my life. Right? So we have to be careful with leaning on, well, I was just born this way. That's the whole point of being born again. Right? And we have to be very careful. And so I have to be careful as a person who's more extroverted, not to say, well, if you don't do this, then you're not really X, Y, Z. But at the same time, I don't want to let you get away with using the excuse, well, I was just born that way. Are you with me? It says in Psalm 28, verse 2, keep, keep going. When are you going to change it? I'm going to change it. He says, hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help, as I lift my hands towards your holy place. Hear my cry for mercy. Anyone ever cried out to God for mercy? Yeah. As a matter of fact, when you're crying out for mercy, you're not going, well, you know, the way I was born, you know, I don't want to be too, uh, too emotional, so... God help me a little bit? No. If you're in deep enough straits, dire straits, you're going to yell. You're going to cry. You're going to shout out for what you need. Ever seen a kid in the grocery store when, when they want something from their parents? And they're crying out? They go, Mommy! 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 You ever heard this? Mommy! Mommy! They're going, Mommy! They're not going, Mommy! I wonder what that three-year-old thinks about me. They don't really care. I'll go, Mommy, I wonder if I'm genetically disposed to be this emotional. <laughs> if they want something, they go for it. And their mommy's all right, but nothing like the king of the universe. And when we cry out to him, how much more do we need not to be reserved? Some of you say, well, you know, we do all that singing and stuff here in church, and I just can't sing. I told the group last night, I told Brian, I said, I will eat an entire Bible. I'll eat all the pages. If you can find one verse in the Bible that says you have to be a good singer to sing. God doesn't really care as much about your ability to sing as he does about your heart to sing. Now, those of us here on microphones, we better get close to the notes or else y'all are going to be like, I can't worship, I'm too distracted. <laughs> all right? So we got to get close, and we got time meters, and we got keys, and we got stuff to keep us, you know, close in time. But 
the heart is what God is looking for. And he says, sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting. You know like that good pair of jeans that just fit? He's like, this is the right thing to do? Yes, I'm going to put these on again. I don't care if I haven't washed them in two weeks. These are fitting. Right? Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. It's what we're supposed to do. Is be people of praise. Does that make sense? Um, I want to talk to you about something that I think is phenomenal. It's called entrainment. And it was discovered in 1665 by this... Uh, uh-oh. Brian, I shouldn't have let... You shouldn't have given me this remote. <laughs> um, it was discovered by this, uh, this scientist, Christian Hudgens, back in um, 1665. He's a Dutch guy. And what he did is he walked in a room. And when he walked in the room, he noticed that two uh, pendulums on grandfather clocks, they were swinging at the same time. So being a scientist, what does he do? He knocks one off kilter, right? He leaves, comes back, they're swinging at the same time. And so he comes up with this definition, tendency for two oscillating bodies to lock in the phase so that they vibrate in harmony. Now, you're saying, uh, what does that have to do with anything? I think it's very important in musical worship because of the opportunity we have to come together in unity and to lock in the phase, lock in the harmony with the Holy Spirit. How many of you are old enough to remember the commercials? Is it live or is it Memorex? Remember that? Is it live or is it Memorex? I want to suggest something to you that everything in life has a pitch. Okay? That's one pitch. You hear that? It's a different pitch. Here's another one. Here's another one. Right? Everything in life has a pitch. Right? And pitch and wave frequency is very, very important in the context of what I'm talking about here and in the context of that Memorex commercial. What was happening was, you remember, the, I think it was Ella Fitzgerald. She would sing a note and the glass would begin to expand and contract. You remember this commercial? You all enough remember this commercial? Okay, some of you aren't. So... So this woman named Ella Fitzgerald, she would sing. And there, was a, there was this glass sitting there, and there was a sound generator. And she was singing the exact same pitch as that glass. And because she was singing it perfectly for so long, for so loud, it caused the glass to actually expand and contract until the glass broke. Right? Now, there was a... Oh, do I turn to you for this? There was a bridge in, uh, in Washington called the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. Anybody? None of you are old enough to remember that. <laughs> right? It was in the 40s, wasn't it? But you might remember studying it. And in the 40s, this happened. Hit it, Jared. He went to Jared. No. <laughs> it's spelled different, right? <laughs> yes. All right? So... Now this is, I, I actually tested this with one of your scientists here last night. So this obviously is a suspension bridge. And so the musical understanding of this, I'm sure there's a different scientific understanding, but the pitch of that bridge and the pitch of those, that's the, the suspension cables, because the wind began to blow at a rate that they had not calculated for, the wind began to literally play those suspension cables like a bass string. And it became the same pitch of this bridge. And you can see here this steel suspension bridge is being, you know, 
turn around. He tried to save it by putting a car on it. Bro, you need more vehicles. Um, and that's eventually what happened. First time I saw this, I went, oh my gosh. This makes sense for me. Because there's a story of God's children walking around a town called Jericho. Remember that? And they walked around for seven days. And I think on the last day, they had to walk around seven times. And it was really cool. On the last day, God didn't let them say anything. And so they were in perfect unity. Because when you can't talk, you can't argue. And so husbands and wives weren't arguing. No kids were saying anything. They walk around seven times. And when they shouted, and when they blew the trumpets, I believe that in the sovereignty of God, that the pitch of the children of Israel was the same as the pitch of those walls. And those were some serious walls. You could actually do chariot races around the top. Am I right, Brian? You're the scholar. You could do chariot races around the top of these walls. And they came down. And here's the scripture. It saith, it saith, when the trumpet sounded, and the people shouted, and the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed so that every man charged in straight and they took the city. Not a battering ram, but a shout, a sound from people together in unity. See, your worship when we come together is very important. Your worship alone is important. And however you worship, you worship with the word, right? You worship in prayer. You actually worship in serving. I, I, I was telling Brian last night, uh, I go to this church called Hillsong in New York, and you've heard of the music in Australia. So they started a church in New York about three and a half, four years ago. We've had 35,000 people raise their hand and say, I want Jesus. Okay? About 10,000 people come every weekend. We do six services in a club. It's really amazing. I'm leading worship, and there's like a disco ball spinning right there. Right? Hundreds of people get saved all the time. It's what God is calling to. Now, my estimation, our church is not super mature because we have so many young Christians. And so that's one of the things we work on, you know, and the leadership works on is how do we help these people grow up. But I mean, you walk in the church and if you ain't saved, you better watch out because the Holy Spirit will grab you. But we have 1,000 volunteers. 1,000 volunteers that get to a bar 6 o'clock in the morning by 10 o'clock, the first service, it starts to smell like a church. And all throughout the day, and then one service over in Jersey, and sometimes we do services out on Long Island. But those young people have been taught, one of the first things they learn in their faith is how to serve in the house of God. And how valuable it is that they give their time and their energy to serving the local church. And it's not only the pastor in the pulpit or the people, the musicians... That, those aren't the only people who, who are, that God is using. But he's using all of us as we give of ourselves. And so that's an act of worship. Right? And so your, your silent, your, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, your worship alone, whether it's serving, whether it's reading the word, whether it's prayer, whether it's ministering to your family, that's important. But when we come together, it's like we have this opportunity for God to create the aggregate effect. And so everything that you've been going through and you've been overcoming and you've been worshiping through and everything that you've been going through and overcoming and worshiping through and everything that you've been experiencing and all that you've been learning, we come together and sing together. And God uses that in a mighty sound. It's no telling what walls, what enemies that surround this city that God wants to break with your praise. 
And he wants to use you. And your praise is valuable. And our praise together is powerful. It says in Revelation 22, 17. I want to ask you to do something. If you can go to the book of Second Chronicles. I want to end with this. And while you're going there, I'll, I'll share this scripture here. Revelation 22. The spirit, the spirit and the bride say come. And let him who says come, come. Whoever's thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Well, what does that mean? I really want to focus on the first part of that verse. The spirit and bride say come. The spirit, the Holy Spirit, the bride, you and I, we say the same thing at the same time. It's a powerful thing when God's people come together and they, and they hear what the Spirit is saying and they say it at the same time. That's what happened at Jericho. They all said the same thing at the same time, blew the trumpets, and there was breakthrough. I love this passage um, in Second Chronicles because I believe, I actually believe it is a, it can be a worship leader's manifesto. Now it's, and Brian can give you the, the theology better than I can. It's in, the, it's in when Israel was a divided kingdom. And Jehoshaphat was leading the, uh, the people of Judah. There was also the people of Israel at the, second, at the same time. But he was leading the people of Judah. And they were about to have this battle. Right? And, uh, okay, here we go. I see what you say, Brian. See, I turned it off. Now they're not looking at that. They're looking at me. Thank you for discipling me. Um, and so we're going to start in Second Chronicles if you've got it and then we're going to start down in verse 1 chapter 20 did I not say that? Second, I just told you Second Chronicles and I said listen to the Lord he'll tell you which one Okay. alright Second Chronicles chapter 20 I'm reading from the NASB alright so here we go he says now it came after this, that the sons of Moab, the sons of Ammon, together with the sons of the Muonites, came together to make war on Jehoshaphat. So three armies versus one. Do you see that? Three against one. All right. They came and they reported to Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from the sea out of Aram. And behold, there are, okay, places that I can't, they're coming from over there. All right. That's what he meant. Verse three, Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord. That usually happens. When you're outnumbered and you're about to get beat up, you go, God, help me, please. And they proclaimed the fast throughout Judah. Verse 4. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. Everyone came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, and that's verse 6, okay? So I'm going I'm to let you read that prayer on your own. But we're going to pick it back up at verse 13. Okay? So there's this long prayer. I'm not going to read it. You can read it on your own. And here's what happened. All in Judah were standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. Verse 14. Then in the midst of the assembly, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of... This dude was somebody's son. Okay? Verse 15. And he said, Listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid or dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. Now watch this. Oftentimes, you and I try to fight battles that are not ours to fight. We need to let God fight those battles. 
Because I guarantee you, if you try to fight a battle that God is supposed to fight on your behalf, you'll probably lose. I said guarantee, then I said probably. Because you can never tell with our God. Because oftentimes, because he's sovereign, which means he thinks he can do whatever he does, he wants to do, he'll step in and save us, even though we, we start doing the wrong thing. Anybody ever experienced that besides me? Right? But it would be wise to allow God to fight the battles he's supposed to fight, and we fight the ones that we're supposed to fight. And so, I keep moving around because I used to make fun of my mom. She would always do this with books, and now I'm doing that. So I'm trying to make sure that the light hits us right. <laughs> Never make fun of your mama. All right. So he says to them, don't be... So verse 16, he says, Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, you'll be coming upward by the ascent of Ziz, and you'll find them at the end of the valley in front of the, the wilderness in Jeruel. So look, I don't know a lot about military strategy, but I do know this. If I'm one army and there's three against me, I'm probably not going to go on the offensive. This is when you know God's fighting your battle. He says, hey, go down and march against them, although you're outnumbered three to one. Then he says this, you need not fight this battle. Station yourselves. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Okay, he says, go fight them. But you're, march down against them, but you're not going to need to fight it, but you will have to stand. Now, I've never experienced depression. It's not the way I'm wired, okay? Hyperactivity, yes, okay? But depression, no. But I hear this, that if you're going to overcome depression, you at least have to get out of the bed. Because if you stay in the bed, depression will win. But you will have to take a stand, but then let God fight the battle. But you've got to take the stand. And that's what he tells him. He says, you don't need to fight this battle. Station yourselves and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Do not fear, do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out and face them because the Lord is with you. Verse 18. Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. I love that. I love strong men who are humble. And go, I'll put my face on the ground. I'll eat carpet. I will humble myself before the Lord. And what was cool about it is the entire nation followed it. When you have a humble leader, all right, people want to follow that. They want to follow a strong and humble leader. Or you can say humble like my mama. Okay. So then the Levites and the sons of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up and praised the Lord God of Israel with a very loud voice. And here's what they did. Here goes the battle. Verse 20. They rose early in the morning. They went out of the wilderness. They went out. Jehoshaphat said, listen to me, Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Put your trust in the Lord your God and you'll be established. Put your trust in his prophets. You'll succeed. Verse 21, when he had consulted the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord to praise the Lord in holy attire as they went out before the army and said, give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. Now, in the NIV it says he appointed men to sing and to go ahead of the army and to sing this war song. Now this is interesting. I told you I don't know a lot about military strategy, but if there's three armies there, and my army is here, I don't want to be the person that, that God says, go in front of the artillery, because I got a strategy for you. I mean, if our government calls, calling all worship leaders, calling all worship leaders, we need you to go to battle. I'd be like, well, that's like, I, I don't really get paid to do that. It's not my real job. So he calls them out, and he says, go in front of the battle, and let's see what his war song is. Um, his war song is... 
Give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. Now first of all, earlier in the verse when he says, he sends him in front of the army to praise, that word praise in the Hebrew means to lift the hands, which is the international sign for surrender. That's right. If I'm walking out of, out of my house in New York City and NYPD comes up to me and they put a, a gun to my head, I'm not going to go, hey man, what you doing? Leave me alone. Just trying to walk outside. No. Policeman puts a gun to my head, I go, I didn't do it. I surrender. Am I right or am I really right? So he says, God's instruction to Israel is go in front with lifted hands of surrender and sing, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. That's so powerful. I mean, I need a man war song. My God will kill your God. My God will cut off your God's head. Your God will be dead. I mean, let's get me a chant here. He says, go in front and sing, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. Oh, by the way, surrender. There's something about that. Because he says, talk about God's love for you. His love is everlasting. His love endures forever. I think he could use Jehoshaphat because Jehoshaphat had proven his humility by bowing. He said, look, bro, this is not about you, it's about me. But I need you to stand. I'm going to use you. You go stand in front and you surrender to me and apparently to them. But when you sing about my love, when you brag on me, when you talk about how much I can do, watch what happens on your behalf. All right, you ready to hear the end of the story? So they're out out in front of the army singing a love song, y'all. All right? And after they're singing their big mighty bad love song, it says, when they began singing, this is verse 22. Uh-oh. You thought this might happen? All right. So I've got a bad show, so somebody's got to help me. Reconnect me. It's a little ears. I, got, yeah, I do have little ears, too. You have to talk to God about that. He made my ears little. All right, so, so verse 22. Are y'all getting anything out of this? Is this helping anybody? Okay, okay, good, good, good. I don't want you to waste your time. You dressed up and showered, most of us, and came here. So let's, let's, let's hopefully you get something out of this, okay? Verse 22. As they began singing and praising, the Lord said ambushes. Okay? Now there's more to it, but I want, you, I want you to focus on that. They began singing, the Lord said ambushes. They sing, he fights. I believe it's Mark eleven twenty two. Jesus said, If you will say to your mountain, Be thrown in the sea, it will be done for you. He said, Don't go try to move a mountain. You're going to hurt yourself. If you speak to your mountain, be thrown into the sea, it'll be done for you. They begin to sing, God said the ambushes. Reading on, verse 22. And... And, come on, bigger letters. And the Lord said in the ambushes, and the men from Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah as they were routed, for the sons of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants from Mount Seir, destroying them completely. So two armies destroy one other army. Right? And when they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. So, Here's a story. Recap. One army coming, three armies coming against one. Jehoshaphat says, God, I'm scared. Humbles himself, he prays. Gets up, God gives him a battle strategy. He says, this is your strategy. 
might sound stupid, but march against them. You go offensive when you're outnumbered three to one. And by the way, you're going to march offensive, and you don't have to fight, but you do have to stand so that you can watch my deliverance. I mean, you've got to be trusting God, because this doesn't sound right <laughs> as far as military strategy. And then he gets there, and he says, oh yeah, by the way, while you're standing, put people in front of your artillery. And have those people not sing a mighty fight battle song, but have them sing about my love for you and how everlasting it is. And by the way, raise your hands and surrender. And when they did that, when they followed God's plan, the three enemies that were coming to attack them began to fight against one another. And then the two that were left killed each other off. You know, there are enemies against us as God's children. Now Brian can explain to you that that's historical narrative and I'm taking a secondary meaning from this. Are you with me? All right, so I'm not, this is not expository teaching. Brian can explain it to you. But that we have a biblical example and a standard of how God fights on behalf of his people. And I know that in a room like this, there's some of you that are struggling with faith. Just belief. There's some of you that might be struggling with depression or oppression or doubt or fear or a, a stronghold of poverty that's a generational curse in your family. And those things come at us. And one of the things I like to encourage my friends, and especially when we were working with a youth group in Nashville, Tennessee, before we moved to New York, I would encourage the kids in our group to worship first. I just want to challenge you. When those things begin to attack and you feel it, and you feel the pressure, and you feel defeat knocking at your door, I want to ask you just to lift your hands and say, God, I surrender. And God, I want to talk about how good you are to me. It may not seem like he's being good because of the, what you're feeling from the attack. That's the exact time you need to begin to brag on his love. Brag on the fact that while you were yet sinners, before we were born, he so loved us that he gave his son Jesus to die on our behalf. What an, what an illustration of love. See, I believe God is the great love demonstrator. I believe it's Romans 5, 8 or 8, 5. It says, and God demonstrated his love for us. He demonstrated his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He is the great love demonstrator. I told my wife so many times before she was my wife how much I loved her. How much she meant to me. How beautiful she was. She finally said, could you demonstrate that at a jewelry store? <laughs> she didn't want me to just talk about it. She wanted some demonstrator, some demonstration. And you know, we're, we're created because my wife's created in, in the image of God. You know, if she wants demonstration, I believe God wants demonstration. It's not enough for me to just say, God, I love you. You know, you mean the world to me. You're just so special to me. But then if the Houston Texans score a touchdown, go, hallelujah, Jesus. It confuses people if we're more excited about the Texans than we are Jesus. Does it not? It does. And so we're going to worship some. I'm stopping three and a half minutes early, which is a miracle. Just note that, miracle. Um, but we're going to worship. And what, what's so cool about these songs, and so many songs that, that we sing as the body of Christ, is that they're directly from Scripture. And so what we're doing is we're declaring the Scripture over our life. Right? And so as we do this, I want you to remember some of the things that, that we're talking about. Right? And 
And I am, I am serious. If, if, you're not, if you're not wired to be super expressive, for some of you just to do this is going to be a huge move. Right? For some of you just to move your mouth rather than just look at the words. Because we can be singing, you can just look at the words. Looking at the words is not going to help you. But you've got to move your mouth. Even if you just say the words. Start with saying before singing. That's a great step. Because singing is simply sustained speech. That's all I'm doing. I'm singing. I'm just sustaining a word. That's all singing is. Now this doesn't sound very good and you wouldn't buy this record. But that's all singing. Everyone can sing. No one can say I can't sing. And as Brian reminded you, when you were dating that girl, men, you had a song in your heart. You were trying to sing it to her. Right? And so all of us have that ability to sing. So we're going to sing. We're going to have some opportunities to lift your hands. You're going to have some opportunities maybe just to be quiet before the Lord. One definition for bless the Lord means just to bow your heart. And there are times when you might be so overwhelmed or maybe, maybe you just, the only thing you can do at that moment is just bow your head and say, Lord, I bless you. And so team, why don't we come back up? Do you guys appreciate your worship team here? Please clap. <laughs> And uh, let's make sure I did. I got through all of my slides here. I didn't. I forgot one. Good thing I checked. So, um, I don't know, five, six, a bunch of years ago, um, my wife and I started uh, listening to this, this preacher out in California. His name was Bill Johnson. <clears throat> and we never heard of him. Some friends of, our recomm- some friends of ours recommended him. And so... Um, I don't know, it might have been five or six years ago, we were out in Redding, Redding, California. And this church began to believe that God could use them for something significant. And because one church believed it, other churches kind of jumped on the bandwagon, and they all started asking God if he would make Redding, California, you ready for this? A cancer-free zone. What kind of prayer is that? They, they had, his, his, here's why it happened. His dad died from cancer. So when someone that close to you, right, is, is hurt by something, you go start a foundation, you go raise money, you go help with research, or you do what he did. He was like, well, let's just see if the God who can do any, anything, right, maybe he would make our city a cancer-free zone so that if people have cancer, they come to our city and they get healed. Kind of an outrageous prayer, I thought. I don't know if you think that's normal. You're looking at me like, oh, yeah, that's normal. We do that all the time here. All right? But for me, that was kind of outrageous. I'm like, might even be a little arrogant. I don't know. I never heard anything like this. But you know what happened in Redding, California after about two and a half, three years? Now, it started with one church, but other pastors got involved because there was a unity, and there's power in unity. The pastors came together. The churches began to come together, and they just began to pray and worship every Sunday believing that God would answer this prayer. After three years, maybe two and a half, they had a 59% decrease in cancer wards in the city. They shut down 59% of the cancer wards in the hospitals. Because one church that got in unity with other churches believed that their worship and their prayer could cause their city, literally the city, to be a place where people came with cancer and they'd be healed. 
I tell my wife all the time, if anything ever happens to me, please take me to Redding, California. <laughs> because them people out there, they pray, and they pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And they believe that there's no cancer in heaven. And so they believe that if you pray your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, then maybe the, the economy of heaven would invade earth. And so, I'm not saying you as a church have to do that, but I'm saying it's possible. I'm saying that you never know how powerful you are as an individual sitting in that seat. I don't care how insignificant you think you are. God has a different idea about you. He thinks you're very significant. He actually thinks that your life can be used to change other lives on this planet. That's how special you are to him. All right? Why don't we stand up if you can? If you, if you can't, that's fine. You can remain seated. And we're going to work.